That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. H.P. Lovecraft You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to the October bonus episode of Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hole. And I'm Lee Esses. Happy Halloween! We decided to use this episode to share some of our own writing. These are short stories written by members of The Forge for Halloween, including all things horrific and spooky. These are the versions straight from the keyboards and pens of our writers. They haven't gone through a rigorous editing process, but we hope you enjoy them all the same. My name is Lieses, and my story is called Thirsty. The highway was thirsty. It had nothing to do with the lack of rain so far that year. Dead leaves scratched their way across the asphalt, traveling in short lurches, driven by the wind. No, some years the area had water, and some it didn't. But rain was never enough to slake the highway's thirst. The ribbon of man-made black wound its way through the mountain pass. The region had been devastated by a fire some decades ago, and most of it had recovered something of its former forested glory. But for about a mile of the road, everything was as lifeless as the day the last coal was put cool. There was no helping some places. They were sick, but it's impossible to put something like that out of its misery. They just had to persist, satisfying their thirst with a lone traveler when they could. Once a year, on the anniversary of the fire, this was one of those places. Joe had chosen a terrible time to go through the mountain pass. It was supposed to be a shortcut, she had promised to be home by dark, but her family knew her tendency to be late, even if she failed to plan for it, well, always. They could start Grandma's birthday party without her. Joe told her brother as much before she lost reception miles ago. He'd said they just might, and laughed, but to hurry. Now the setting sun was her ticking clock, letting her know as each moment passed that she had too much asphalt left to cover. The more the light dwindled from her vision, the faster she pushed the gas pedal. The road was both familiar and empty, never in Joe's experience sporting a police officer to ticket her. So she gunned it, not bothering to stay inside the yellow lines. The only hazards this close to the mountain were deer, who couldn't be bothered with the painted yellow plastic. So neither could she. Foliage cleared to bony stalks of long-dead trees, letting the dying sun through, almost like a light switch flickering for her. The devastated area. It was little more than a landmark to Joe. It meant she was almost there. Half an hour, less if she kept up this pace, and she'd be singing to Grandma with her family. Joe had never seen any signs of life in this area. To her, it meant she didn't have to be going slowly for the sake of the deer. That had changed in a minute or two when life returned around here. But here, she could just go. The gray world whipped by Joe so quickly she almost missed the figure standing by the side of the road. What was that? Joe risked a glance in her mirrors, but the figure was long gone. Her first impression had been a hitchhiker, but she was too far removed from civilization. No one in their right mind would hitchhike in this area, especially with how much the temperature dropped after sunset. Her headlights. She should have turned them on an hour ago, or at least when the sun started setting. The threat may have passed, but that didn't stop Joe from being grateful to it for the reminder. She looked down, finding the switch for the headlights, and twisted it. A horrible sight greeted her when her eyes found the road again. Someone, something, was standing in the middle of the road ahead. 
Joe jerked the steering wheel left, making far more effort to avoid the collision than the figure was. She felt her tires hit gravel, yanking the steering wheel back right again, looking for the road. The front of the car obeyed, but the rear axle seemed to prefer the gravel. Then she felt the tires catch on the highway again with fresh enthusiasm. The whole vehicle spun as Joe practically stood on the brake. Time seemed to dilate, giving her a full 360 view of the area like some carnival ride. On the first time around, Joe could even see the figure. The car finally settled with a jolt, facing her the direction she had come. There was no figure. Nothing at all to merit the circular skid marks on the highway. In the time it took Joe's car to make the second full turn, it had vanished. But she couldn't forget what she had seen. The image, both from the initial spotting, and then again as her headlights glanced past it during the spin-out, was burned into her memory. Not that there was much of a face left to remember, just skin. Was it that the person had shaved the back of their head, leaving a headband of hair across the middle and top? The car ticked, unhappy at the sudden cessation of movement. But it was all Joe could do to attempt to settle her pounding heart. Breathe. The mountain air was too thin for her lungs. Her hands quaked the moment she released the steering wheel, so she clenched onto it again. She didn't dare blink, suddenly grateful for the lonely stretch of road. At least there would be no traffic. Joe wanted to call her family, anyone, to let them know she was alright, that she'd avoided the worst of the car accident and would be running a little late, that's all. The logic centers of her brain told her they didn't even know to be worried for her, even if she did have reception in this area. They already knew she was running late. Nothing to tell that wouldn't just frighten her mom. Joe should get going. The car had turned itself off, so Joe reached for the key and twisted it again. The engine turned, but didn't start. Had she overheated it? She suddenly wished she'd pay more attention in shop class. She didn't have a clue what had gone wrong, much less how to fix it. Either way, what she was doing wasn't doing any good. Maybe she just had to let it cool? There was a tap on the glass beside her skull. Do you need help? Shocked, Joe whipped her head around. There was the same figure less than an inch away from her window. Joe's heart, which had just started to realign and slow, jumped to double speed again. The person, she could tell by the voice more than the hair or the facial structure, was female, perhaps in her late teens or early twenties. It was hard to see by the dying light, but the bone structure underneath had been mutilated, caved in, and twisted horribly without leaving a scar on the stretched skin. Flesh covered every orifice, eyes, nose, even the mouth. The only break was a tear where the lips should be. Joe closed her eyes and forced herself to breathe. She was imagining things. She had to be. Another tap. Hello? I can help you. She half expected the figure to be gone when she opened her eyes again which of course made no sense. Too many horror movies, Joe chastised herself. The figure, girl, was holding her awkward posture uncomfortably close to Joe. Fortunately, the window was still separating them. The dying sunset did nothing to hide the hideousness of the girl's features, which were unchanged from the moment before. There was something like a smile spread across the lower half of her face, the top half only broken by a caved-in dent in the skull. It was like canvas of flesh. Joe couldn't imagine how the girl operated, much less how she could help. Still, Joe tried to ignore everything her eyes told her as she rolled the window down. The girl was to be pitied, not feared. Having a deformity like that, Joe decided against talking about it, but that didn't mean the girl was any less of a person. Yes, yes, I, I need help, Joe confessed. I know you do. 
That smile didn't fade at the comment. Perhaps it was permanent? The girl stepped back and around to the front of the car where the headlights illuminated the rest of her body. A full-length gown, like a prom dress, though softened by distress and stained so Joe could no longer tell which color it was supposed to be originally. Didn't matter, so long as the girl could help get Joe back on the road again. Perhaps Joe could give her a lift into town, or at least someplace more populated than this desolate mountain road, in return for the favor. Though the girl didn't seem particularly uncomfortable, despite being barefoot. Joe found the lever and popped the hood. I really hope you know what to look for, she commented, stepping out of the car. She could at least look at it with Joe, if nothing else. I found you. What an odd thing to say. Joe looked at her, but the girl's face was pointed at the still-closed hood. There were no eyes, not even eyebrows, just stretched skin over the mangled skull underneath. It took everything in Joe not to just stare. Joe stepped around to the girl, assuming she needed help with the hood. She could do that part, at least. The car was still ticking, as if talking to itself. Joe half expected a plume of smoke to buffet her, but nothing. You need help, the girl said. She could tell that just by looking. She hadn't even lifted a hand to check the oil or anything. Joe looked back at her, but the girl was facing Joe, not the engine. Can I help? Why was she facing her? Joe couldn't exactly say why she didn't like it, only that the dying light on the pale, stretched skin disturbed her. So she diverted her eyes back to the engine. I hope so. Finally, the girl moved her hands, but to Joe's surprise, it wasn't toward the engine. The palm flung up into Joe's nose. She didn't even have time to smell it before her nose was smashed into her own skull. All she could register was that the palm was moist and cold before the force of the blow sent her backward. Before she knew it, Joe was on her back, back of her skull bouncing against the pavement. The figure had jumped on her as if Joe were a bull on a rodeo riding her to the ground. Pain racked through Joe, not just in her broken nose, but her skull and every part of her body she'd landed on. She couldn't think. All she could do was tremble as her body tried to make sense of the sudden trauma. Don't worry, the figure said, pinning Joe down with her knees on either side of her. I'll help. I'll make you pretty. The cold, moist fingertips brushed an errant hair from Joe's face. Then, without warning, the figure shoved her fingertips into Joe's nose and thumb into her mouth. Joe could feel the cold dripping into her nasal cavity and triggering her gag reflex. She couldn't even breathe around the fingers which had embedded themselves into her skull like she was some bowling ball. She tried to fight back, but her left hand was pinned to her side by the girl's knee, and the right was doing nothing but getting that moisture on itself as it struck the figure's dress. The cold moisture wasn't evaporating either. The figure used its grip on Joe's face to lift her head wholly off the ground. Joe's hair did nothing to protect her skull as the girl slammed it back into the asphalt. Joe could feel the blood gush from where she'd made contact, warm at first as it combed through her hair, then cooler as it made contact with the coming night. But there was nothing she could do. She was trapped, unable to defend herself as the girl lifted and slammed Joe's head against the road again. Then, suddenly, mercifully, it stopped. Was the figure gone? No, she could still feel that cold moisture wiggling slightly in the back of her throat. Joe collected every ounce of courage she had and opened her eyes. The mangled face of the girl was close, watching her. Her head tilted like a curious puppy, hair from one side just long enough to brush the side of Joe's cheek. The posture was intimate, if not for the horrible things she had done to Joe. You need help, the girl said again, this time in a whisper. It was true, Joe did need help, but not from her. 
Joe wasn't sure she'd have been able to answer even if the girl's fingertips weren't choking her from the inside. I'll help you. No, Joe didn't want it. Whatever this help was she was offering, Joe was sure she'd be better off without it. She just wanted to be left alone, to go back to her car and pretend this was all some horrible nightmare, that this figure wasn't causing accidents and strangling her with her fingertips. The girl stretched to standing over Joe, lifting her skull as she went, forcing Joe into an awkward half-sitting position. This way. She turned to the cliffside of the mountain, breaking her own elbow with a snap as she repositioned to drag Joe across the highway. The coarse asphalt sanded flesh off the heels of Joe's hands as she tried to fight the figure. She was just a girl, no older than teenage. She probably didn't even have her license yet. Why was this so impossible to fight her? Almost done, the girl told her, showing her first bit of real emotion with a cheery giggle to punctuate her comment. Joe was leaving a smear of blood behind her on the highway, a mix of the precious liquid gushing from the back of her head and the parts mixed with the meat of her hands. The sun was almost fully set now. No one would see it until morning. A car roared around the corner of the road, lighting them up with its headlights as it flew toward them. Too fast. The vehicle was a metal juggernaut of death. The figure disappeared an instant after the headlights hit it, abandoning Joe in the middle of the road. Then the headlights hit her. The grill, the undercarriage. Gore spread across the breadth of the road. Her limbs went every direction, and skull bounced once more on the pavement before the real axle pulled it clean off of her spine. Joe was aware of everything. Every sensation, every bit of pain and cold and blood and darkness. She was dead. She had to be. But she still felt it all. The car didn't even slow long enough to see what it had hit. It just continued on its way, the way Joe was supposed to have gone. There. The girl was back, standing where she had been moments before the car rounded the turn. Her arm was still broken at the elbow, three fingers still impossibly stretched from where they'd snaked into Joe's nose and mouth. All better. She picked up Joe's head and brought it back to where Joe felt herself sitting, watching. The flesh on her face was mangled now. She could see it like a stage prop in her own lap. It wasn't that different from the girl's, though Joe still had the full head of hair, and the skull was caved in on the other side. You can say thank you now, the girl commented. Aren't you glad I came to help? Maybe it was a moan as another day faded into night. Maybe it was a sigh, like the sound one makes when they awaken from a particularly bad dream. Or maybe it was just the mountain wind changing directions as the air rapidly cooled around it. But something about that highway exhaled that night. It was relieved, satisfied after a year of thirst. The traveler in the car would make it to his destination. Grandma's birthday party would go on. The world around the burned area would continue as the highway went dormant again. It would get thirsty again. It always did. And it would slake that thirst again. It always did. I am Crystal Hart, and this is At Night. Dusk gathers at the edges of my grassy hillside, and with it, the familiar terrors of the dark. We girls wisely abandon our nightly feast to retreat indoors, where it is warm and cozy and safe. Blanche, my plump, dear friend, crazy as she may be, loves this time of day. I'll never know how she came to be so fearless. Perhaps it is age. She is several years older than I, but it feels like we're worlds apart. Through the open door, I watch her kindly, 
She stands near the house, picking at leftovers everyone else has abandoned for fear of the dark. I have to give her credit for cleverness. She never goes hungry as some of the rest of us do. She's the beauty of us all, head a soft red, long legs, sturdier than the rest of us. I vow to be just like her someday. She is so brave. Nothing makes her run in fear. I want that to be me. I notice how her sharp eyes take in the changes of approaching night. Perhaps it is her awareness that gives her courage. She turns her head to listen to the cricket's song. Little birds had long left the fields and returned to their homes as predators emerge. Wolves with teeth sharp as the butcher's knife. Coyotes and skunks and bears and the list goes on. I take a step back from the door, remembering the time I'd seen a wolf come too close to the house, slavering all over pointy canines. Rabid is the word I had heard used. I remember feeling the power of its gaze like it wanted to make me its meal. Blanche notices me then, as if aware of my weakness in calling me out. She is offering me food. The long shadows have disappeared. We would both be inside, but I take a step toward her, and then another. The food is good. I forget why I'd run in fear. Blanche turns her head sharply. I stop. I trust her instincts. Mine tell me to run. Then I see what she sees. A shadow darker than the night around it, tall, much taller than we are. I hear footsteps. I feel their echo along the ground beneath my feet. A long pole appears with a glint of steel on the end. How I see it glinting, I don't know. I look to Blanche for guidance. Her eyes are wide as they meet mine. Why aren't we running? I want to scream, but I don't. Blanche knows best. A meaty hand reaches down, snatching her up. It happens so quickly I hardly know what's going on. Like a chicken, I run away terrified. I know I will get ribbed about this tomorrow when the rest of the girls hear about it, but I don't care. Something is happening to Blanche. Her head is on a stump, held there as the glinting steels raised high above it. Quick as a lightning strike, the axe falls. Her head rolls to the ground as her dead body writhes and blood spurts everywhere. I've heard this is how it happens. But I'd never seen the horror of it until now. I stumble over my own feet as I make it back inside, squawking and waking the whole henhouse in my panic. I turn sadly to watch as Blanche is hung by her feet and carried back to the master's house for dinner. Hi, this is Sue McLean. My story is The Blood Drive. Taking a look at your news headlines, firefighters responded to the home of Dr. Frank Enstein after the residence was struck by lightning. Authorities are searching for a brother and sister, George Hansel and Eva Gretel, on suspicion of trespassing, destruction of private property, and in connection with the disappearance of Shay Isawich from a home on Sugar Plum Lane. The Department of Game and Fish are now searching for a gray wolf that chased a 12-year-old girl who was on her way to her grandmother's house. They're hoping to tag and place a tracking device on the beast, which, according to the young red-hooded victim, was described as having big eyes and big teeth. This just in, there's a traffic alert for eastbound Highway 276, where the United Vampires Association is having a blood drive tonight until midnight. Also, Jack's Covet of Witches are boiling up some fun for the whole family with the Halloween carnival starting at 5th and Eastwick Avenues. Get there early because they're planning on having quite a few children for dinner. 
The Werewolf Pack is also having a camp out under the full moon tonight just off of Highway 276, traffic backing up at the turnoff of Disenchanted Way. Meanwhile, the Zombie 5K run starts in about an hour at the dam. Travis switched off the radio, not inclined to hear the commercial jingle as he drove down Highway 276. Why do all the weirdos come out on Halloween, he thought to himself as he glanced out the window. The dark walnut trees lined the roadway, their limbs resembling fractured appendages and knotholes creating craggy faces in the graveyard as the full moon loomed in the distance. The evening fog rose slightly off the ground as the gravestones stood like mystic warriors ready for battle. 16-year-old Travis knew he shouldn't even glance at the graveyard. It was bad luck. And that wasn't even the worst of it. In the distance, he could see the flashing red and blue lights of the roadblock up ahead. The blood drive. And I'm not ready to donate. I'm, I'm not ready to make that type of commitment, Travis said to himself, which is something he did when he was nervous talking to himself. And now he couldn't even remember if he had his driver's license. As the teen slowed down and attempted to pull over to the curb to check, he started to swerve. Then he noticed a law enforcement motorcycle in the rearview mirror and the words pull over blared out of a loudspeaker behind him. Travis started to sweat and his palms were now soaking wet. As the officer approached the window on the passenger side, Travis leaned over to unroll it with his left hand. Within seconds, the teen's right hand slipped on the leather and he did a face plant into the passenger seat. Step out of the vehicle, the officer said gruffly. All righty, Travis mumbled into the slick black leather seat that was now saturated with his sweat. This is humiliating, Travis said as he swung the passenger door open, striking the officer. After regaining his composure, the officer asked, What are you, human? Have you been drinking? Do you even realize you just assaulted an officer? Travis was so nervous that he just nodded up and down in agreement. So, you have been drinking, the officer exclaimed. What do you have to say for yourself? At which point, Travis awkwardly blurted out, I, uh, I, I've been, you know, not, I mean, drinking. I, I was playing video games with my bro, Eddie, who was like, you should know something. And I'm like, what? And he's like, uh, candy. The officer was confused. You want candy? Okay, boy, I don't have any candy, but I do have a one-way ticket downtown. First, I want your driver's license and proof of insurance now. Travis's eyes were filled with tears as he reached into his pocket and grabbed his wallet. He handed the officer his driver's license, all the while taking note of the flashing lights of the checkpoint up ahead. The officer noticed his interest and said, Oh, that? There's a blood mobile up ahead. We're having a blood drive tonight until midnight, and I'd ask you, as he held the license to Travis's throat as if it were a knife, but it appears that you might be under the influence. In one quick motion, the officer dragged the license from Travis's neck to his chin and scraped off the skin where his beard was still trying to grow in. Ow! What'd you do that for? He asked as he rubbed the raw skin on his neck and chin. Because I can, said the officer, who proceeded to walk towards his motorcycle where he ran Travis's ID. No priors. Then he noticed something was off about his driver's license. The sound of the gravel crunched beneath the officer's feet as he walked back towards Travis. Just a few questions before I conduct some tests to see if you've been driving while impaired. Now, where are you coming from tonight? Travis vomited a rapid succession of responses that nearly overwhelmed the officer. I was at my girlfriend Candy's house and she told me that she might be in love with my best friend Eddie, my bro, who told me while we were playing video games. And I'm like, bro. And then she said he was a good kisser and that she liked his fangs. And I'm like, well, he's no Dracula. And then she put me in the friend zone. Can you believe it? 
she put me in the friend zone and I was like texting her after I left and then then she blocked me and I was thinking about turning around and then I had to look for my license and then I want to go back to her house and then you cop blocked me and I haven't been drinking he added okay catch your breath son catch your breath you're not drunk the kid's eyes were slightly bloodshot but the officer could tell he wasn't under the influence then the officer gently patted the kid on the back consoling him like he did his own son Then he wiped his hands off on his uniform pants. You're just sweaty and you're young and you're heartbroken. Yeah, Travis has mumbled as they both leaned back against the car as if exhausted by the conversation. Then the officer had an idea. Let's have a moment of silence for the death of your relationship. The officer stepped forward, removed his hat and bowed his head. Travis followed in suit and they both just stood there for a few moments until the officer broke the silence. So, kid, I noticed something about your driver's license. I see that you're a donor. That's great. I'm a donor, too. I just want to know why you're not committed. Your license reads undecided. Travis's mind began to wander back to Candy, who always looked great in his sweatshirts. He always smelled like vanilla and tasted like peppermint. The officer persisted, why are you undecided? You know how important it is to make a wise decision, because if you don't, it could be decided for you. Look at me. I'm 6'3", handsome, strong, and smart. Plus, I look great in this uniform. And your friend Eddie, he committed too. Now, I know you're young, but don't you think it's time? You're not going to live forever and you're not getting any younger. Just then, the handsome officer's radiant smile began to change. His teeth began to grow into sharp points and two large fangs curled over his lower jaw. Travis also noticed two circular scars on the officer's neck as his fingernails began to grow into large, yellowed, monstrous claws. Travis jumped back from his vehicle onto the gravel shoulder and said, I have until I'm 21 to decide. Now, sounding like a vampire of old, the officer began to struggle with his words, which were now coming out slightly slurred due to his long, menacing fangs. You also decided to break up with your girlfriend tonight and go for a drive on my beat. You decided to travel down this road where we're holding a blood drive. In essence, you decided to die tonight. The startled teen stepped back away from the officer and said, I'm not ready to die tonight. If I wanted to die, I'd have the perfect girl lined up. At least I thought I had. I'd have taken my time and picked out a cool cherry redwood coffin with shiny silver rails and plush soft interior. You know, I do like the old oak and pine boxes, but I really like that redwood because when it's waxed, it has this super high shine. Not only that, I make sure I'd wire my coffin with tech gear featuring the latest movies, videos, and even surround sound. You know, the kind of coffin that would make my dad proud. My mom says she likes the new metal ones because, well, they're supposed to last a lifetime and the wood ones have to be replaced every 100 years or so. You know, I know some guys that commit early and have to get their coffin on scholarship. My mom doesn't want that for me. She wants me to stay undecided until I graduate college and get my degree. To be able to provide for the one I love as we plunge into darkness together forever. I don't want to just hook up with anyone and just die When I become a vampire, I want to die with the one I love. It only happens once, and I want it to be with someone special. A garish smile spread across the officer's face. Well, it sounds like you have committed after all. The vampire's teeth slowly began to shrink back to normal, adding, You do still plan on donating blood tonight, at least. Why, yes, sir, I promise to donate blood tonight and die right after I graduate college, Travis said. 
great, said the vampire officer. Having all these humans walking around gives me the creeps. I'm Lee Hull, and this is my short story for Halloween, Reflections. We'll set up the camp out here. Investigate tomorrow. Ruins of a castle loomed tall and forgotten before us on the mountaintop, the symbol of a long-dead kingdom succumbing to the same fate. Beyond and to the north, I could see the water of the lake reflecting the dying landscape as a mirror in the bright daylight. As I stepped into the clearing, I was too enamored by the sight that I took no notice of all that was distorted. My mind was focused only on the accolades that would certainly come once I returned with tangible evidence, and not the eerie stillness that surrounded the crumbling stone. I dropped my pack to the brown grass below, glad to be rid of the extra weight, and pulled a sketch pad from inside. The remainder of our party skirted around the ruins to begin setting up camp. Ignoring the glances and glares, I began to draw the picturesque scene before it was marred by the flurry of humans desperate for a meal. The discovery was one long anticipated. It was the first tangible evidence of an undiscovered civilization of which I had only found mere mentions in my research. Any reference I could find considered it a myth, if it was there at all. What struck me, though, while I sketched the details, was the condition of the ruins. My hopes sank with each stroke of my pencil. It was all too preserved for a kingdom as ancient as had been suggested in my research. Full rooms still seemed to be intact, and only a few exterior walls had crumbled. As wonderful as the discovery would be, a new castle previously unknown in a mountain range of Austria, it would not be the one I had dreamed. Too disheartened to continue the drawing, I set aside the pad before finishing the castle. My only remaining desire would be a discovery inside the ruins that might provide more substantial evidence of what I sought. Oh, how I wish I had continued to draw the rest of the scene that day. Then I might have noticed. I went to find the expedition leader, Janos Taf. As expected, he was directing the assembly of the main tent at the eastern edge of the clearing. The man was as burly as he was rough, though still accustomed to a civilized living. He had been the only mountaineer willing to lead a crew up that particular peak. There's still daylight left. I said as I approached Yanis. Why not explore now? Despite my disappointment in the apparent age of the castle, I was still eager to learn what the ruins had hidden within the crumbling walls. That's how we end up dead, he said, expression remaining stoic. Caution is the first law of mountaineering. We wait. We observe. Then we investigate. But no. I stepped back, surprised by his adamance. He was stern, almost angry. You hired me to lead, so let me lead. We wait. Unwilling to argue with a man, though I would outwit him, he vastly outweighed me, I returned to my pack to begin pitching my own tent on the southern edge of camp. It was becoming an easier process after a week of trekking, but it still took me far longer than the others. Sketching had not helped in that regard. After it was finally ready, I stood and wiped the sweat from my brow. My hand froze as something on the water caught my eye. It had first seemed to be a rather large fish rippling near the surface, 
but as I looked for whatever it was, I could not find it. The water remained as motionless as glass. Believing it to be a vision of my exhausted mind, I retired to the tent. It was separated from the main body of the camp. I wanted my view of the ruins unobscured if I chose to wake and sketch by moonlight. My body was growing more accustomed to the hard ground and did not protest as much anymore as I drifted into sleep. It was not long before I was woken by a disturbance. It was fully dark outside, with only a faint light shining through the dense canvas for the moon and a campfire. I listened more closely to what was happening and realized several of the men were arguing. They had grown more irritable each day into the expedition, so I ignored the spat and attempted to sleep again. Their voices, however, only grew in volume and intensity. It's just water. Cursed water. To hell with you all. I'm going to get a drink. Curiosity compelling me, I went to the entrance of the tent to watch the dispute. A short man, one of those who cared for our pack animals, was walking away from the circle of tents and toward the lake. More than one person attempted to call him back, but he just waved and kept walking. He was knee-deep before he finally stopped. The water rippled gently outward with a peculiar serenity. It almost appeared as if the water was calm, despite having someone disturbing its surface. With a glance back as if to reaffirm his belief it was safe, he bent and placed his hands into the water. Cupped hands full, he raised it to his lips and took a long drink. The man turned back to the camp with a grin and waved for more to join. A single ripple began to return from the center of the lake. It was moving faster than physics would allow. My stomach clenched and I felt the blood drain from my face. I could not move. I could not speak. I could not breathe. I could not warn the man to run. I could only watch. All was still for a moment as the ripple reached the man. He didn't appear to notice. Without so much as a cry of surprise, the man disappeared beneath the surface. The camp reacted immediately. Men ran in every direction, some toward the lake, some for rope. Yanis began to shout orders, commanding the crew members who seemed lost. I remained frozen, staring. The man did not resurface. He didn't even appear to struggle. Before anyone could reach the bank, the water had returned to its glassy state. For the next hour, everyone in camp attempted to find and rescue their friend. Each passing minute, hopes grew dimmer and knowledge the man was dead grew stronger. I attempted to offer my assistance but was shunted out of the way. Knowing I would not be able to return to sleep while the crew tried to rescue their friend, I busied myself with caring for the remainder of the evening meal. My eyes kept drifting toward the lake as I scrubbed the dishes. Something unearthly drew my attention and turned my stomach. I continued to watch the ripples as the men worked in the water. Even with so much motion, the center of the lake remained undisturbed. The man was never recovered. When Yanis finally called off the rescue attempts, the crew retired to their tents nearly immediately. Amid the somber silence, I caught the occasional muttering against me and my foolish expedition, as they called it. I returned to my tent as well, though my sleep was not nearly as deep as it had been earlier that evening. My mind kept returning to the lake, 
an eerie weight pressed down upon my soul, and I began to believe the mutterings. What little sleep I did get was haunted by the dreams of unspeakable horrors rising from the depths of the lake. When I woke just before dawn, an uneasiness filled my stomach. Nausea overwhelmed me as soon as I stood, and I barely made it through the entrance of the tent before I retched the contents of my stomach onto the ground. No one else appeared to have slept well that night. The few that were awake at that early hour did not speak, nor did they even look at the others. It was a small comfort as I realized they would not look at me either. Being ignored was far preferred to being the target of accusing glances and murmurs. As the sun rose, casting a soft orange light across the clearing, my anxiety began to flee. Hope returned once again as I looked over the ruins. I soon forgot the twisted horrors of my dreams in favor of fantasizing about the knowledge that waited within the walls of the castle. I held myself back, though, from urging Yanis to expedite the scouting process. It would not be proper in the light of the evening's events. Instead, I resolved to wait for Yanis to gather the scouts and begin the exploration himself. The mood of the camp seemed to be improving, at least. Men who lived to explore the wilderness were well acquainted with tragedy and loss. Though the crew wasn't rambunctious, they did not let their mourning inhibit their work. They prepared quickly, and soon a crew of five scouts plus Yanis had gathered at the edge of the camp. I joined them, unwilling to wait any longer. By keeping myself busy that morning, I had allowed my mind to dismiss the unnatural events of the evening. I attributed the man's fall to an unsteady footing on slippery rocks and thought the strange wave to be simply an illusion of an exhausted state and moonlight. I approached Yanis just as he finished instructing the scouts. I'm joining you. I need to see what's inside. You'll wait until we're done making sure the place is sound enough to not come down on your precious little head. Yanis examined me critically, eyes lingering purposefully on my satchel, which he knew was full only of pencils, journals, and sketchbooks. None would be useful if I found myself trapped in a collapsing room. I'll not wait any longer for this discovery. I looked back at the man, mustering as much confidence and authority in my voice as well as my posture. I won't go off on my own, and I won't enter any rooms until your team deems it safe, but I will go into that castle. Yanis shrugged and turned back to his crew. On your head, then. No matter to us. It was on our trek southward again, toward the castle, that I first saw what was wrong. As I wrote in my journal about the apparent state of the area... Movement of the lake caught my attention. A palace was reflected in the still surface of the lake, not the castle which stood before me, a slowly crumbling ruin. The reflection seemed almost a burned memory, a photograph of what once stood in that place. A stately structure, grand yet dark. The walls were the blackest stones, windows blood red, and worse, so horrifying that my stomach turns to this day simply to remember the sight, were the creatures. There were things that passed by the windows, their silhouettes revealing shapes that seemed a sinister mockery of mankind. The vision, for that's what I forced myself to believe it was, was gone in the next moment. I said nothing to my companions, convincing myself it was only my exhausted mind creating illusions reminiscent of my dreams of the night. I focused once again on my notes to rid myself of the lingering images, though I could not be rid of the weight it left in my stomach. 
I nearly retched its contents any time the memory of the creatures entered my mind again. When we came close enough to examine the ruins, I knew the illusion could not have been real. The stones were a white granite dimmed with age. The design seemed to fit 12th century architecture for the region, square towers with steep roofs, built as a fortification rather than a house of luxury. The scouts encountered few problems as they inspected each room. My heart quickened the farther I went into the castle. I did not wish to touch too much, yet. Not with my hands so unsteady from excitement. But I saw there was much to be learned. The ruins and its contents were remarkably whole for what I estimated to be at least eight centuries old. Dust lay in thick blankets across tables set with plates and goblets, as if its inhabitants had been getting ready for a meal. Books sat undisturbed on shelves. Wood did not appear to have succumbed to the rot of age. We soon discovered a library of sorts. It was small and lined with bookshelves, still mostly full of various tomes and scrolls. There was a large table in the middle, with what appeared to be ancient maps. I could not help but smile as I looked on the discovery. Oh, what wonders that room held! I wish to this day I had been able to recover just a portion of the knowledge within those pages. Yet some things are better left unread. Still reluctant to touch anything, I began to inspect what I could on the open pages and maps. One set, a scroll pinned open next to several pieces of parchment, appeared to have been an abandoned translation project. The scroll, which seemed ages older than the parchment, contained runes the likes of which I had only seen once before. Some of the strange symbols matched what I'd discovered in my research. Nowhere else had I found evidence of those runes being a previously known written language. I had some trouble deciphering the translation. It appeared to be an old form of High German, which I had not studied extensively. Some of the words caught my attention, though. It seemed to be a religious text, describing an ancient pantheon of gods associated somehow with water. I had thought the translation probably faulty, as it was rare for a landlocked civilization to worship water deities so highly as was implied. My fingers shook from the joy despite the possible errors, it was what I had been searching for all this time. There in front of me was evidence of an unknown civilization, one advanced enough to have a written language system. I found not only proof, but an entire room bursting with scholarly treasures. The joy was soon replaced once again with a dreadful weight in my stomach, as I realized there was a lack of anything living. There were no webs to indicate skittering creatures' presence. No rats could be heard or seen scurrying through the castle, nor any trace of their droppings. We did not encounter bats perched in the upper reaches of the ceiling beams. There seemed to be no life at all within the castle walls, except those from the expedition. It seemed the castle and its contents had been abandoned by everything, even time. Sir, you'll want to see this. My attention was pulled away from the careful examination of a shelf's contents by a scout peering around the door from the hallway. They'd explored most of the upper portions of the castle and found the staircases to be strong enough to hold at least one person at a time. But the scout did not lead me upwards. I followed him through what appeared to be a small chapel to a door hidden behind a tapestry. 
A stairway descended into blackness, but the fearless scout holding a flickering torch stepped down into the depths without hesitation. It seemed to have no end, but only to be a stairway descending into hell itself. The graying white granite slowly darkened into a deep black stone, smooth and unnaturally cold to the touch. My heart began to race again, not from excitement, but dread. The stairway opened into a cavernous room with black walls. The single torch was not enough to allow me to see to the other side of the room, though the flames did bring to my attention numerous etchings in the obsidian-like stone. Calling the scout to bring the torch closer, I inspected the wall closest to the stairway entrance. The runes matched those found in the partially translated scroll. I knew this room must be from long before the castle. My breathing became shallow as images flashed in my mind from what I'd seen in the lake. A black palace, blood-red windows, creatures of indescribable horror. I stepped backward from the wall, stumbling into the scout. He dropped the torch in an attempt to steady me. It rolled away, highlighting portions of what seemed to be several large, concentric circles or arcs, lined with more ancient runes descending toward one point in the room. Are, are you all right, sir? I, yes, I'm, I'm fine. I'll be fine, at least. Once I had regained my balance, the scout retreated farther into the room to recover the torch. As he lifted the flames, I finally caught sight of the center circle and the thing it contained. The scout must have seen it too, as he raised the torch high in an attempt to light the figure, a statue at least 40 feet tall. An almost electric charge raced through my veins. My heart was pounding in my ears. Breathing became a labor which in that moment felt more difficult than any trial of Heracles. Every instinct for self-preservation I possessed was ready to run, to flee that place in that mountain and never look back. Yet I found myself frozen, fixated on the monstrosity before me. Its shape was humanoid, while at the same time a travesty of the human form. Arms too long and skeletal drooped from narrow shoulders. A cyclopean head looked down upon us, wide mouth gaping in a sinister grin. Two deep red stones, the disproportionately large eyes of the statue, shone in the flickering firelight. Eyes as red as the windows in the lake. I felt in that moment the statue was alive and peering into the deepest, darkest parts of my soul, ready to devour it in a single breath. Once my mind regained a semblance of balance, I was able to convince myself the statue was only that. A statue like those of ancient Roman Greece depicting a long-forgotten god. With a deep, shuddering breath, I stepped forward. Curiosity and scholarly ambitions compelled me toward the base of the massive statue— the same strange ancient runes were carved into the round platform which comprised the center of the concentric rings. I walked around it, examining the writing, but could not find any place where the runes would begin. It was as if there was no beginning or end. Whatever it said seemed an eternal loop. Resting at the front of the statue was a piece of parchment, similar to those which held the old Germanic translations. 
If only I had left that place then and not read what I found on that page. I read aloud, roughly translating the text into my own tongue. Eternal slumber holds not that which cannot die. Wait beneath the surface for the heralded return. No mortal shall stand who treads the ground when the dark god awakes. A choice to fall or forever remain, for eternal slumber holds not that which cannot die. Waves of tremors radiated from the base of the statue. I fell to the floor, unable to keep balanced in the violent shaking. A large crack rent the air, followed by a sound that doused my very soul in ice. It was deep, hollow, and monstrous. The unearthly howl reverberated through the chamber, growing ever louder. It seemed as though it would never cease, and in that moment I believed I would die, consumed whole by the sound alone. My body racked with terror at the mere thought of seeing the creature from which the cry emanated. When the tremors and howl finally faded, I pushed myself up from the floor. All had gone dark. The torch had been extinguished. I could hear the scouts' mutterings, desperate whispers for death. The man had gone mad. I turned toward the sound, knowing the scout had been between myself and the stairway, and began to walk. My feet tested the ground before each step, for I did not know if the tremors had broken open the ground beneath. I stretched my arms forward, grasping desperately for walls which may lead to my salvation. A new sound entered the room after only a few steps. A bubbling sound came from somewhere behind me, and soon each footfall was accompanied by a splash. The room was slowly flooding. I quickened my pace, desperate to avoid a sinking death in such a dark, ominous cavern. Just as the water reached the top of my boots, an icy shock seizing my legs as the water finally touched my skin, I found the staircase and ascended as quickly as my feet would carry me. The sight that I had met above as I looked through the remnant hole of a window made me desperately long for that watery death below, along with the mad scout in the cavernous shrine. What I had attributed as only a vision had awakened. A black palace sprawled out on the surface of the lake. It was not a reflection, for the angle could not have shown me the castle, but appeared as a portal to a twisted dimension. The creatures streamed toward the surface in droves. The water surged upward as the first thing reached the edge. The tension held like a bubble around the distorted form for several moments as it pushed outward until the water finally burst and freed the creature from its damp prison. Hundreds of the creatures followed, each with pale skin and dark red eyes. The water that dripped from their skin was viscous, falling in streams rather than drops. Their mouths, like that of the statue, were gaping maws too wide for any natural being. Screams of terror carried across the mountaintop from the expedition's camp, I watched as the army of monsters fell upon the men, tearing the ones they caught as easily as a man tears paper, then devouring the pieces. A few of the brave among them tried to fight back. Loud cracks from their rifles and pistols punctuated the screams. Their efforts did nothing. I retched, though my stomach contained little more than acid. 
Yanis found me then, cowering beneath the window with ears covered and eyes clenched shut. His touch evoked a cry of primal terror, as I assumed all but myself had been killed and the monsters must have finally found me to exact their punishment. It's just me, Yanis said, holding my hands firmly to keep me from fighting. We must leave. Now. The words did not expel the fear, but did instill in me some hope. I was not the only one. I looked up to Yanis, fear apparent in his usually stolid face, and the two men with him. Cracking stone and a tremor through the castle interrupted my thoughts. Yanis lifted me to my feet and pulled me along as he and his men began to run. I would not be alive had it not been for those men's courage and ability to act when faced with things more terrifying than even the most twisted mind could conceive. I could hear feet, too large to be human, slapping the stone behind us with a sickly wet sound. The echo made it impossible to tell how far the creature was from us, but the sound compelled us forward more quickly. Sheer terror was the only force that kept me moving, for my body, so used to scholarly endeavors, would never have lasted so long at the pace we ran. Yanis had found another way to leave the castle opposite the camp and massive monsters. The scouts, used to running with light feet and going unnoticed, led the way, navigating our small band, the only who remained of our entire crew, safely away from that cursed mountain lake. If only I had not looked back... I might have been able to forget the things I'd seen. That part of me still focused on the scholarly accolades longed for the knowledge still hidden in those books. As we left the clearing, taking refuge in the cover of trees, I looked back at the castle in the lake. Rising from its depths was a god. The god I had seen depicted in stone below the castle. Its skin was black as night and seemed to devour the light around it. Monstrous red eyes peered across the clearing in our direction, and it grinned. Terror surged through me, and I fell beneath the weight of that stare. Yanis grabbed my arm, lifting me again, and forced me to continue my flight. The god roared, a monstrous sound that I could never forget. I sometimes think I hear it still, echoing across time to haunt my waking hours. I do not know what happened on the mountain once we escaped. My nightmares would have me believe the creatures are still there, amassing an army to conquer the world once again. I hope, though, they returned to their watery graves, left alone in that other plane for eternity. Maybe the next man whose hubris drives him to that mountain in Austria will not be as foolish as I, and leave what should never be awakened." If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing.